On a Thursday night in January, rush hour was fading, freeways were emptying, and while most people resigned to their homes, calling it a day, Justin Watson's was just beginning. I parked my car in an empty lot and gazed up at a tall, nondescript office building in La Mesa off El Cajon Boulevard. I told Watson, whose professional name is Jay Watt, that I was here, hit record on my phone, and met him at the front door. I can feel a subwoofer rumbling as he opened a glass door that was blacked out with some paint. I was welcomed by amber lighting and music. I'm Jonah Valdez, and you're listening to I Made It in San Diego, Voice of San Diego's podcast about the region's business and the people behind them. Jay Watt is a music engineer. The night I met up with him, he was working with an artist whose rapper name is Nino California. That's Nino singing. Jay was working from his desk, looking up at a huge flat screen TV flanked by two huge speakers. He was editing Nino's song, laying tracks with vocals and effects. But from my view, it just looked like a bunch of blue and green and purple lines stacked on top of each other. Nino is one of the many artists that work with Jay at his recording studio, Jay Watt Production Studio. A lot of the time, artists will have an itch or an urge to record and will call Jay, sometimes as late as 2 a.m. That's what brought Nino to Jay's studio that night. An itch, an urge, or as Nino called it, and it came to me in the car. Here's Nino. This is this is really something that just came to me in the car. I be, I got a, like a bad habit of like of bombarding him with uh, came to me in the car. Yeah. You feel me? So, but 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 honestly, like you know, like I, there's a there's one that sometimes you when you feel it and you really know what's up as an artist. Like being realistic with yourself and the, and in the engineer, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was one of those songs that I felt like just had to be like, I got to do it now. Jay's official job title is music engineer, but when you ask him what he does, he won't just describe knobs and soundboards and recording software, the technical stuff. He'll give you similes, metaphors, a philosophy. Mentoring somebody is a job in itself. It's a task because my job is to make you a better artist when you come out. That's my whole goal, is to satisfy the artist. When you look at it, I just sell time. I am the product. You know, I I have to sit there and give the end result. Putting this on record, I do believe I have the best sound and the best facility in San Diego. Those are big words to say in a town with studios that have recorded music for award-winning, platinum-selling acts like U2, Blink-182, and Carlos Santana. But what Jay may lack in hardware and record sales, he makes up in work ethic. His clients call him Watt the Bot, as in robot, a non-stop machine. The nickname is a compliment, but it's a nickname that lends itself to a lot of hard work. Watt the Bot, ready to record, mix, master, Song after song after song after song. Jay told me that finishing one song could take two hours or up to two weeks. I watched Jay take more than 20 minutes with an artist just to perfect the 10 second snippet of a song. Two weeks makes a lot of sense. Jay offers unlimited studio time, so there's nights when he's with clients until 4 a.m. He plays a balancing act between more than 100 clients. That's on top of being a father of two a one-year-old and a two-year-old. He's also an on-air host for the local jazz radio station, Jazz 88.3. Jay's studio is a sort of mirror image of himself, versatile and virtually non-stop. Here's Nino again, this time describing the studio. Bro, be having it. This, this thing will look like that's cool right now. different places. It'll turn really? into a showcase. <laughs> yeah, live band. Be, it gets tight. This shit'll be spread out. It'll be a whole video shoot in here. Then later on, it'll be a studio session yeah. right after that. All in one day. Man, they have rehearsals going on in here. All kind of shit, bro. It's crazy. Like, 
the transitions you'll see like that fast. Like it'll be like the blink of an eye, clean up, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> Next session. Now, all right, boom, Bro. finish that. Now, hey, look, we got rehearsal. We got the show tonight. Somebody come in. They need a show mix. We got, like, bro, be like really, really multi. He's a really, really, really good multitasker, bro. I can really say that about him. So I asked Jay, through all the hours and late nights in the studio, don't you ever get worn out? I am extremely exhausted sometimes. And I'm ready to hang it up, but I'm just, it's just, I, I, I just want to go one more round. It's almost like you can't let it go, but you have to at some point. I've never really promoted or advertised, never pressed flyers, business cards. It's just, you have to go to Jay Watts to get that good sound. You got to go to Jay Watts. Who's the best engine? You got to go to Jay Watts. Who's the best producer? You got to go to Jay Watts. So, Hearing that, of course, it, it fuels the fire, and that's why I'm exhausted. <laughs> that's why I'm up till 2, 3, 4 in the morning. Forget everything you think you know about the music industry. The Grammy Awards, the Billboard Top 40, arena concerts with thousands of roaring fans, the glory. When talking with Jay, you realize the music industry is hard work. Most of the time, it's not glorious or even profitable. Paydays don't always match the amount of hours put into the music, and yet Jay keeps doing it. For the past 10 years to be exact, what the bot? So I started to wonder, what is it really that keeps him going? Money? Ego? A dream? To really understand Jay and his work ethic and his passion for music and where he is today, you have to try to understand what it's like to chase a dream when everything is bent against you circumstances, dishonest friends, where you live, money, the legal system, your own body, your own mind, and even the forces of nature. Everything. And to understand that, you have to understand Jay's family. And to understand Jay's family, you have to understand Detroit, Michigan of the 1980s and 90s. Detroit City is a tough city. Tough love, I would say. Tough love. Mm -hmm. Not so much in a negative sense, but um, Detroit definitely shaped who I am today. I left when I was 18, so I had a childhood and a teenage lifestyle. I mean, a teenage life there. So I would say Detroit is your typical blue collar city um we had the big three which is the motor companies ford gm chrysler so a lot of the families were hard-working families big families you know three four kids supporting each other and it was in the early 80s to the mid 90s it was a it was a fun and thriving city and then something happened and it just took a toll for the worse Toyota is turning the truck world upside down. In the 80s, Japanese car companies like Toyota started to outpace American companies like Ford, GM, and Chrysler, the big three. Manufacturing plants across the U.S. started closing. Thousands of workers were laid off. For many families in Detroit, these factories meant food on the table. You know, a lot of the families that I mentioned worked at the big three. That's all they had to stand on, and a lot of them couldn't do anything else they had no education you can work in the big three right out of high school you know 18 20 bucks an hour so education wasn't important as work mm. and so a lot of families just went straight to work and then once the layoffs started and they started to close the plants a lot of families suffered my family suffered and that's what Detroit was a thriving city that turned into I don't want to say slum, but it's definitely in a position where it can be that if it doesn't change. Some of Jay's relatives still work at car manufacturing plants in Detroit. They survived the layoffs. Jay's dad used to work in one of the big three plants as a teenager. He had a stint in the military, then worked for a Ford plant. 
Afterward, he found work at a railroad company. Jay's mom was a college professor, but eventually became a full-time mother to nine children. Four of them were biological, five were foster children. Jay's mom would end up adopting five children through foster care, but before that, she cared for anywhere between 100 to 200 kids in the span of 25 years. Everything and everyone around Jay was about work. Hard work. And that meant Jay didn't get to see his parents much. But something that always brought Jay close to his parents, something that kept them connected, was music. Music has always been a part of me. My dad and mom would always have basement parties. We call them red light and blue light parties because you change the light bulbs, put the color light bulbs in. And so my dad was a very good host and he would have parties and I just remember good music and we would try to sneak downstairs and they would tell us to vacate the premises and go to bed. So in that case, my dad uh, had a whole bunch of records and I would just always get into his records. It would get on my case because he would see the fingerprints and stuff like that. I started playing with records and then CDs came out. And this was a new technology for the, the 80s. My dad had a CD player and I was always fascinated by the music that was coming from that small little contraption. And my dad was a, he was a fan of music, rock, soul. Jazz, hip hop, it doesn't matter. He he loved music, good music. You know, it wasn't about just playing anything. It had to have a message, and, and that's what it was about. If the music had a good message. We could listen to it. Sly and the Family Stone, just to name some of the some of the earlier um, artists. I remember he would play a lot of Michael Jackson, a lot of um, Roy Ayers, who was a funky jazz player music from Miles Davis, um, and then as we moved on into the mid-80s and 90s, my dad would get into the hip-hop as it became popular, from Queen Latifah's to your Big Daddy Kings and Heavy D's, and then he kind of lost his step along the way, but I kept it going, and um, I think I appreciate that part of my life, is just being exposed to many different genres of music and seeing the feeling it gave my mom and dad when they put on good music. And I was just was, wanted to feel that same vibe, you know? When Jay was six or seven, he didn't have a personal radio, and he couldn't play his own music. So we looked around the house for tools and equipment, and he made his own. And so one day I took a headphone um, cassette player, and I just kind of hooked it up into tape player and connected it to a receiver and I had my radio and I think that's what was the start of me trying to find my way with the music eventually Jay didn't have to use his makeshift radio anymore over time his mom got him his first boombox my parents bought a, me and my brothers a boombox, and uh, I'm not. It was from um, a place called Renner Center, and I remember vividly because we would go to this place, and my mom would always make a payment, but we never knew what it was. And then finally, it was a boombox, and she gave it to us. And me and my brother, we would hustle around the neighborhoods um, during our elementary years to make, you know, some money. We would rake leaves or shovel snow during the winter months. And so one day I had enough money to buy my first CD and I bought, um, it was a group called Main Source. And they had a single called Looking at the Front Door and he was talking about his girlfriend. We fight every night, now that's not kosher I reminisce with bliss of when we was closer And wake up to be greeted by an argument again You act like a 10, so immature I try to concentrate on the cure And keep looking at the front door And, you know, during elementary I kind of had a crush <laughs> On someone And it was just uh, I just 
thought that song was speaking about me and my crush. So I bought that, played that CD in a boombox, and that was my beginning, I guess my beginning years of really owning music, you know, purchasing it. As Jay went through junior high and high school, moving into the heart of the 90s, hip-hop's influence became international, and Jay's love for hip-hop became more intense. It felt like hip-hop started to expand from the urban communities and into suburbia, and it became more popular, and it became a driving factor in my life Image-wise, social status, everything was hip-hop. I ate, slept, and breathed hip-hop. Jay started to take his love for the music beyond just cassette tapes and CDs. Jay drove right into the places where authentic hip-hop lived and breathed, apart from the record labels and executives. The underground. Detroit's own school of hard knocks. This is where acts like Eminem got their start and was the central setting during the 2002 movie, Eight Mile. Just to reiterate that, Eminem, you know, back to the movie, Eight Mile, I was going to those same venues that he was going to, St. Andrews, the hip-hop shop, and what we call in hip-hop, School of Hard Knocks. These are cities that breed hip-hop artists because we have locations where we can go and display our skills and our talents, and these are places where you can gauge yourself by looking at your peers. And these places created the Eminems and the Big Shans and the Jay Watts, you know, because I had a place to practice and I had a place to feel a part of a family, the hip hop community. But real quick, um, just paint for me the picture what these, uh, like you call it, the School of Hard Knocks. What did St. Andrews? Uh, St. Andrews and you said the hip-hop shop. What did these yes. venues look like? St. Andrews yeah. was an old church, old Catholic church in the, heart of, in the heart of Detroit, right downtown. And I remember we would carpool, me and my buddy, you know, we would park and walk up. And it was always a line to get in. But this church was a, a historic building. So it had many rooms and multiple levels and staircases. So it was always fun to just walk around and bump into people that you were in school with or from the neighborhood because back then you didn't have cell phones and Facebook and yo I'm gonna be here meet me here check in right right <laughs> so that was um, that was the experience you walk in and you get checked by the bouncer and you go up these six or seven flights of stairs and then you're on the first level and then you walk around and the stage is dead in the center of the building and it's a big stage and the times that I went were open mic nights so it was always full and crowded and packed and I was about 15 16 years old and yes we were getting into these clubs at that age because again this was the hip-hop community and we you know we looked out for each other and I just remember going in and seeing like a a group of people in one location they would be you know having a cypher or a freestyle battle you go around you know a little ways down this hallway and in another location you would see like some b-boy battles like people break dancing whatnot and then you go into the main area and then you would just have the dj playing music or it would be like a dj battle or a, uh, a live show going on so this is what the school of hard knocks means even though Jay called the School of Hard Knocks a community and a family, that didn't mean it wouldn't live up to its intimidating name. And I remember getting played, too, because one of my uh, school, I mean, one of my neighborhood friends, he was a little older, but he promoted a, an event that night. And he hustled me, I think, out of like 40 bucks. And he said, I can perform. I paid him, showed up. He kept giving me the, all right, you're going to be on next. You're going to be on next. And finally, as the night wind it down and got to the end i just went on the stage and gave the dj my cd told him i'm playing next wasn't nobody there but i i did that because i wanted to just prove a point i didn't like the, how he played me but at the same time 
I just thought I was better than those other individuals that was on stage and I didn't have an opportunity to display that. So that will always stick with me. But Jay found a way to fit into the underground school. During the ciphers or freestyle battles, people would form a circle and take turns rapping through improvisation straight from the head, or as hip hoppers call it, off the dome. Jay would usually be one to provide the beats, using his voice as the instrument in a form called beatboxing. In a way, it was Jay's first crack at producing music, synthesizing sounds, words, laying it on top of each other to make something beautiful. Jay started going to local recording studios in Detroit, hoping to start his career as a producer, engineer, and rapper. He wanted to do it all. He quickly found out that studios were expensive. In fact, he felt they were overcharging, trying to take advantage of young, hungry artists like himself. And even on a musical level, Jay saw these engineers and producers, and he felt he can do better. It just became a point to where I wanted to really do this full on. I didn't make a conscious decision yet that I wanted to be a producer, music producer, but I just felt like I wanted to be involved in music some way and somehow, and it just, destiny guided me, you know? When we come back, we'll dig deeper into the tough love Detroit that shaped Jay, and we'll discover how Jay found his way to San Diego and broke into the music scene. Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored in part by a proud supporter of Make-A-Wish. As a nonprofit news organization, Voice of San Diego depends on our members, foundations, and sponsors like Make-A-Wish. We are very grateful for all of our supporters, and we recognize their support in our shows. If you crave adventure, love the outdoors, and welcome a challenge, then the Make-A-Wish Trailblaze Challenge is for you. The Trailblaze Challenge is a one-day, 28-mile endurance event along the Pacific Crest Trail. It's open to all levels from novice to advanced outdoor enthusiasts. Visit www.trailblazechallengesd.org to learn more. Proceeds benefit Make-A-Wish. Challenge yourself in 2018, meet new people, and make a difference for children with critical illnesses. Voice of San Diego podcasts are also sponsored in part by a proud supporter of Monarch School. Monarch School educates students impacted by homelessness, helping them develop hope for a future with the necessary skills and experience for personal success. Monarch is holding its annual fundraiser, Building Bright Futures, on April 26th. Join event chairs Tracy Hoffman and recent Hall of Fame inductee Trevor Hoffman at this event. Find out more at monarchschools.org backslash events. And if you like Voice of San Diego's work and want to become a sponsor too, contact development at voiceofsandiego.org. Welcome back to I Made It in San Diego. I'm Jonah Valdez. For the early parts of his life, Jay lived in Detroit's inner city. For a point of reference, Jay said he lived on the city side of 8 Mile, again, the same 8 Mile from the 2002 Eminem movie with the same name. 8 Mile is an actual road in Detroit, and for years, it served as a sort of de facto racial boundary between white Detroit and black Detroit, or between the wealthy suburbs and the poor inner city. After saving enough money, Jay's parents moved their family across 8 Mile into a suburban community along the 9 Mile Road. In case you're lost on the geography, Jay made some comparisons to San Diego's own socioeconomic divisions. As soon as you cross yeah. 8 Mile, you're in suburbia, you're in okay. suburbs. And, um, yep, that's where I grew up, a 9 Mile. Yeah. 
I mean, you still have remnants of the herb because you're so close. Sure. It's just like El Cajon Boulevard, right? Yeah. Is the divide or eight freeway really mm -hmm. is a divide, but El Cajon is the next major boulevard. Yeah. yeah. You go south of that, you're in the, oh, yeah. the slums, you go north Definitely. of that. I mean, I lived on in Talmadge. You know where Talmadge is? No. Okay, El Cajon Boulevard, you know, City Heights is here. Mm -hmm. Talmadge is here. Okay. It's night and day, bro. Yeah. Moving to the suburbs was one thing. Actually remaining there was another. It meant even more work for Jay's family. He and his siblings all got jobs when they were old enough, helping pay the electrical bill or cable bill. And the increase in work also meant seeing his parents even less. Jay remembers his dad getting home from work around nine at night with only enough time to eat, shower, sleep, then wake up at 5 a.m. to commute into the city for work. During a recent phone call, Jay painted their struggle to me. So to see that as a child, and I have, I have to be successful. I can't, I can't give up, you know? <laughs> My mom, you know, raising all those kids, man, it was hard. We were, we were on welfare, it was called Focus Hope. Modern day EBT, food stamp program. But it was called Focus Hope. I would go with my mom and we would stand. Hold on, man. Yeah, no problem. You have to stand in a line and you have to pick your food in boxes, pick it out, put it in your cart. And you would walk up to the line and then you would see the other people in line too. And you walk up with these foods and these carts and it's like canned juice, canned you know, powdered milk and stuff. Nasty food, man. We had to eat that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, <clears throat> hard work is nothing to me. They call me, uh, they call me, uh, they call me Watt the Bot. They think I'm a robot. <laughs> you know, but I just, I just want to be successful. To see my dad and mom and them, you know, work hard for us. That's that's all I, I saw. That's how I'm gonna repay them, man. You know? Yeah. The nickname Watt the Bot comes from struggle. So does his original nickname and business name, Jay Watt. In high school, Jay found solace and success in sports. He played lineman and tight end in football, and he was also a wrestler, a pretty good one too. For wrestling, Jay and his teammates had to write their initials on their headgear. There was another JW on the team, so Jay, or Justin, went ahead and cut the endings of his first and last name, Justin Watson, chopping it down to Jay Watt. He would often see his name in the local paper, highlighting the matches he'd won. He'd even made it to the regional finals several times. But because of work, Jay's parents never made it to any of the games or matches. He made it to the regional finals in wrestling several times, but each time, he'd come up short. My dad worked late hours and my mom was at home with the kids. So sometimes I do feel that, man, if I had my dad there shouting, come on, son, or my mom, come on, baby, that... That would have I would have been a champion or all state athlete, but I will always get to the finals, and I just could never get to that to that that edge and to the top. So I think about those moments when I'm out here trying to achieve things that sometimes you have to do it without support. <clears throat> get a little emotional because you know things like that. You have to be got to be strong minded. You know, a lot of people give up. And they face hard times and they just throw in the towel. But, you know, doing this for the last 10 years, it's been a lot of hard, a lot of heartache. Jay does have one memory of his dad seeing him on the football field. 
While playing sports in high school, Jay fractured several ribs, separated his shoulder, got a concussion, and severely sprained his ankle. It was Jay's sprained ankle that brought his dad to the football field. When the injury happened, the school called his dad from work and he came to pick Jay up. Jay's dad looked at him and said, You all right, son? You all right? They drove home. And that was it. Jay's parents taught him hard work, respect, and discipline. Yet their absence due to work taught Jay what it felt like to go through a lot of things on his own. School came second to working and providing for the family. Jay was smart, and he knew it, but he had no motivation to go to class. He started spending more and more time with his friends, which at times led to trouble. Toward the end of high school, Jay's friends were caught breaking into and entering a house. Somehow word got around to law enforcement that Jay was also involved. During a sentencing hearing, the judge gave him an ultimatum. When you turn 18, finish your time in jail as an adult or join the military. Jay chose the military. He would follow his dad's footsteps and join the Marines. During his time in juvie, Jay fell behind in school and didn't have enough credits to graduate on time. You know, I had to do an extra year of high school because I wanted to make my mother proud. She was very disappointed when she found out I didn't graduate on time. Justin! She was... <laughs> but I did it for you, Mama, so I even got my high school diploma. And then I, I just made a conscious decision to do something legally and right and not try to do what all of my friends and everybody else was doing and trying to hustle and get fast money. Because, for one, I wasn't good at it. I tried it. And for two, I saw the results, either dead or in jail. And that's it. Boot camp was held in Paris Island, South Carolina. In all, the training spanned for 13 weeks, and Jay excelled, finishing as an honor graduate. His dad, a former Marine, was really proud of him. For deployment, Jay bounced around from North Carolina to South Carolina to Virginia to Washington, D.C., and finally Camp Pendleton. In between deployments, Jay would fly back home to Detroit. He spent most of his time with his older brother, who happened to be good friends with his musical artist, Dewele. You may have heard him providing vocals in Kanye West's 2010 single, Power, or singing the hook in another Kanye song, Flashing Lights. Till I get flashed by the paparazzi. Damn, these got me. I hate these more As than I call, I know you love the show both songs would hit platinum and double platinum marks and would break into the Billboard Hot 100. But before all that, Dwele and Jay's older brother were busy tossing pizza dough at Papa Roman's Pizza in downtown Detroit. Back when Jay was in high school, his brother took him to Dwele's house and Jay saw his first studio production setup. Something that stuck with Jay was this little black box with a bunch of tiny buttons. And it was a DR5 drum machine. And it had like 8 to 12 pads on it, and you can play keys or drums, and that's what was my first introduction into really making beats and trying to do it professionally. At the time, Jay couldn't afford to buy his own DR5 drum machine, which cost $650. Jay sat on the idea of owning one for the next few years. In boot camp, while enduring 13 weeks of rigorous training, Jay still couldn't get his mind off of the music. After completing the training, the Marines give graduates money. Jay got $3,000. The first thing Jay did when he returned to Detroit was head straight to Guitar Center and bought a Boss DR5 drum machine. In no time, Jay was making his own hip-hop beats. Here's one of them. Jay finished his two-year stint in the Marines in San Diego. It was 2001, a new millennium. Carrying with him the blue-collar work ethic of Detroit, the memory of those basement parties, and a graduate degree from the School of Hard Knocks, Jay began to chase the dream. 
In the meantime, Jay found work for a company that subcontracted for electrical technicians. Jay's job was to clear any trees and branches that would interrupt power lines. It was a dangerous job, and after five years of work, Jay hurt his knee while on the job. He filed a lawsuit against the employer and ended up winning a settlement of $12,500. While working, Jay was producing beats and sending them back to artists in Detroit. And in 2005, he finally broke into San Diego's music scene. But it was short-lived. I was performing. I had a live band. I was booking my own shows. I had about 100 to 150 patrons or fans that would come. And then boom. Of course, we are in storm alert here at the Weather Channel, and good reason for it. Hurricane Katrina, still a major hurricane affecting parts of the lower Mississippi Valley. And we want to get the bottom Hurricane line Katrina hits. And at this time, my mom and dad had moved from Detroit, right? Remember during the layoff crisis and, and the bankruptcy era? My mom and dad moved down to Mississippi. Beautiful home, beautiful location, Ocean Springs close to the Gulf of Mexico, real nice. And Hurricane Katrina hits, and I had to go home and help my parents. By the time Jay had returned to San Diego, he lost his momentum. His fans had lost interest, and a lot of his regular venues had closed. Jay decided to put performing to the side and started to focus on producing and engineering. Jay got an internship at a recording studio near Mission Bay, he got the chance to observe music engineers and work every day. In 2007, his boss moved south and opened a studio in National City and hired Jay as a music engineer. Three to five months into it, the same boss comes to me and said, I'm thinking about selling the place. Do you know anybody that wants to buy it? I had just won my lawsuit from my, my former employer, and it was about 30, 30K, 30,000. So... I had a friend, his name was Tate. We were good friends, and he wanted to get into the music as well. So me and him linked up, and we bought the whole, the, the owner sold the whole place, furniture, equipment, desks, computers, for 13K. And we went half, and that's how we got the studio. The client started to come fast. A mutual connection brought platinum recording artist Mike Jones into the studio. Mitchie Slick, who is regarded as the godfather of San Diego hip-hop, also started to do some work at Jay's studio. Once your name is out there or your studio is out there that's all it takes like i said word of mouth it spreads like fire finally after years of maneuvering through shady event promoters producers and engineers jay was able to do music his way on his terms jay watt production was in full swing and as more artists began to seek jay's work the myth of watt the bot had officially begun yet sometimes a good thing just can't remain a good thing because we naturally want more. And that's what Jay wanted. He felt the quality of his work was good enough to raise his prices. He felt that despite the price increase, the demand would still be there. And what were you feeling when those first clients started coming in to the studio for the first time? I thought I was the man. I thought I was, thought it was going to last because I changed prices. I started telling people 50 bucks an hour. I became that same engineer or that same producer that I didn't like. And that was my mistake. You know, I was now becoming that producer, that engineer that was doing the same thing that was done to me, you know, charging me. Except I was still putting out good mixes, but, you know, people couldn't afford 50, 60 bucks an hour. So I started to lose a little bit of my clientele. Is that why you moved um, You moved up to North Hollywood? Yes, because okay. I felt that if they can't afford it down here, they down for sure can afford it in L.A. Now, the trick about L.A. is everybody in L.A. has a studio the size of mine in their house. So there's the competition is like, damn, I can't even compete the right way 
because I go to a party, a mansion party, and the guy's like, hey, come check out my studio. And I'm like, man, I need to go back to San Diego. <laughs> yeah, so is that is that what drew you back to San Diego? Just too much competition? Too there? much competition, yeah. and it's a nightmare up there. I hate the traffic. I hate spending 45 minutes to go 10 minutes up the street. It's just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. As much patience as I has in the studio, I have no patience for that traffic. Right. In 2012, Jay moved back to San Diego. After the move back to San Diego, Jay's friend and business partner, Tate, would part ways. They split the equipment, and in 2014, Jay found a spot in La Mesa, right off El Cajon Boulevard. It's the same studio space that he runs today. What did that space look like when you first walked in? Empty had the walls were white flat paint like these walls here it had blue carpet and it was formerly a place where a gentleman sold organs not not body of human uh-huh. parts <laughs> music mu- uh, mu- uh, instrument though got it, <laughs> so, got it. Every now and then, somebody would come knock on the door and say, hey, what happened to us fish organs here again? No, oh, this is a studio. So it was. that's what it was. Now it's, I've, I believe when, when you walk in, yes, you get that, that home feeling, that comfort. Like I'm in somebody's house, even though it's a freaking studio. People love chilling and lounging there. And I have to remind them, hey, I got another session, you know? Yeah. A lot... I mean, people love just to come, hey, you mind if I chill in this session? And as long as the artist is okay, it's okay with me. Jay wasn't kidding about the home-like vibe. When I walked in, the lighting was intentionally dim and warm. The walls were painted a soft blue and crimson. There were several leather couches. Artwork was scattered throughout the room. An abstract sculpture, a prayer candle with Kanye West's face emblazoned on the front a painted collage of hip-hop greats like Tupac, Dr. Dre, and Nas, and spray-painted on the one of the walls in black lettering with a yellow accent, J. Watt Production Studio. Shortly after his move back from Los Angeles, Jay's longtime girlfriend, Viola, moved back to Mexicali, Mexico, which is where she grew up. She lost her job here in San Diego, and she just wanted to be home. In those days... Being between San Diego and L.A., business was tough. He doubted whether any of this would work out. His stream of clients was light. He slept on the couch in his studio, oftentimes only booking one session a day. Even when it was failing, she, you know, she was able to find a way to, to tell me that, you know, baby, it's okay. Do it. Do what you got to do. I'm going to go to Mexico and you stay here. And that's encouraging, you know, for a man who wants to be something in life for their significant other, their woman, their wife, girl, whatever that person may have for them to tell them it's okay to fail. But you get your ASS back up and you make it happen. And I'm going to go here and live my life for a while and you do your thing. And if it's meant to be, we'll be together again. Clients began to come, some old and some new. Within a few years, Jay began to thrive. He was recognized by local music associations for his work as a musical engineer. Albums that he helped engineer and produce for the hip-hop band Vocab Company garnered several San Diego music awards. Though away from Detroit, Jay finally started to feel at home in San Diego. Well, for the most part. You know, I barely go to taco shops and people get mad at me. Like, how long you, How long have you been here? And I'm, I just can't get into the taco shop thing, guys. I, carne inside of fries. Carne of this, carne inside of that. I just, I tried it and come to Detroit and I will show you what chili cheese fries and coney dogs oh, are. Yeah. You know, those are our taco shops. The biggest difference for Jay between San Diego and Detroit was the way he's been treated for being black. When Jay was a teenager, Detroit's population was more than 75% black. The most recent census has San Diego's black population at about 7%. I've been pulled over 
four times last year. No tickets, just pulled over because, quote unquote, my license plate light bulb is out. When I go home, I get out the car, leave my lights on. My light bulb light works perfectly fine. Now, are my, am I being targeted? Who knows? Who cares? I have nothing to hide. I'm doing nothing wrong. But to I come from us all black city, black mayor, black police chief, black firefighters, black doctors, lawyers, you know, and then to come here to San Diego is a cultural shock for me. So I'm st- I guess I'm still adapting to the <laughs> got to eat some taco shop soon. But at the end of the day, the injustice is still here. I see it. I see it all day. So yeah, um, I've been doing this music for a while, mm-hmm. and uh, Jay White is one of my mentors in the SRAM game. I know him since 07. Uh, how old are you? That's Anton Ramashev, a rapper from Russia who goes by Tonic Slam. He's been coming to the United States as much as possible under temporary visas, and every time he's here, he's making music with Jay, or now working as the lead engineer at Jay Watt Production Studio. Tonic was 18 years old when he first met Jay. So he, he's always been my big bro. He gave me that knowledge how to express myself in the booth, how to give uh, the words that I write, how to give them life, how to make other people feel what I say. Either though I'm coming from the whole different part of the world. Right, right. So yeah, he, he's been a mentor for me in music, in, like in rapping and engineering and in life too. Yeah, yeah. Has I always um, mm-hmm. uh, looked up to Jay. To help Tonic on his visits to the United States, Jay has written letters to the U.S. Embassy as a host for his stays. And so the last 10 years, this has been the cycle and we've built up a very good friendship. It's my best friend, and he knows this. And now he's working with me. And to see somebody you mentor now doing the exact same thing you're doing, and it's just a joy. Mentoring somebody is a job in itself. It's a task, and it takes a lot out of you because you have to have a lot of patience, a lot of patience. And you have to be forgiving and at the same time, understanding of their mistakes. A lot of Jay's clients are young. Seeing these teenagers record music in the booth reminds them of his own family, his mother, raising four children she gave birth to, and caring for dozens of children through foster care, and adopting five more children, raising them as her own. So when I get kids that come in, I see their innocence, you know? So it always makes me feel just a, it's a good emotional. Like when I get, like I mentioned, adults to go into the booth and record, it's always like a nervous or, oh man, let me, let me drink something little. Let me get a little drunk first. Let me get tipsy before I can feel relaxed or whatever. But children that go in there and they, they try and they give 100%. And that's where the, the joy comes. Many of these artists grew up in situations that mirror Jay's own environment as a child. People who are shaped by inner city communities like Southeast San Diego. You know, you grew up, I learned that you grew up fast out out here, just like anywhere else in any urban community. You have to grow up fast and you have to be a provider to whoever you have to provide for, be it yourself, your family, your kids, your friends, somebody, you know, and they find ways to do it. A lot of times the artist come in, comes in with um, they wearing their emotions on their sleeves. And in hip-hop or in music generally, you're supposed to write from the heart true testimony. And it's, it's just um, when people do that, and right from the heart and and the emotions come around you feel a sense 
a connection, you know, and that connection can, you know, give you the idea of being in that life right now. Jay is aware of the negative perceptions some San Diegans have about Southeast San Diego. He feels the perceptions and the continual gang violence is holding its hip-hop scene back. San Diego has a ton of talent, ton of talent, but it's overshadowed by the gang violence and the gang associations between different artists and different groups. Southeast San Diego's hip-hop scene made national headlines in 2014 when Southeast San Diego rapper Tiny Doo was charged by then-district attorney Bonnie Dumanis under California's gang conspiracy law. The DA tried using his song lyrics to incriminate Tiny Doo. The charges were dismissed a year later, and Tiny Doo filed a lawsuit against the city in 2017, but the psychological and physical damage is still there. Jay worked with Tiny Doo before. So he's seen firsthand the heavy toll that the case had on the rapper. Mitchie Slick, another rapper from Southeast San Diego, who has paved the way for many musical artists in the area, isn't even allowed to enter the community that he was raised in due to a gang injunction. Yes, he's yeah. a leader. He's supposed to be in the community, along with the Tiny Doos and, and all the other members or prominent um, individuals in the Southeast San Diego. I can't mention them all. I don't know them all. But the ones I do know, they want to speak and they want to be a role model for a positive change. But for some reason, it's the attempt to keep Southeast the way it is. It's, it's what they want. And I don't know who they are, but we all can have an idea of the injustices that happens around this country and who's in charge and, and so on and so forth. Some of the artists that Jay works with are gang-affiliated. Jay understands the element of the community and continues to make it known that his studio is a neutral space. So by me being from the outside, a lot of them don't see me as a threat, I guess, or they understand that I'm not a part, I'm not like them. And they feel comfortable. So I appreciate that. But I do wish that some of these gangs would understand that they're holding San Diego back. The music scene. Not anything else. And that's just my opinion. Because, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm on the outside looking in. I've only been here 10 plus years. But when I record these artists, I, I see who looks up to them and and I see who respects them, and all they would have to do is say a few little things, and things would be better. But we live in this society now where instant gratification is what people want, and we got we to gotta do something about that. Jay has been witness to the pain violence has on a community. He has lost several clients to violence in the past. Going back to the idea of the message and how it's different from when you grew up with hip-hop and the message today, um, and you hear some of these messages that are that do you know speak on gang affiliations, um, do you see a responsibility um, when you see an artist hear an artist in a booth and he's rapping about you know these things that you feel is holding the you know the the scene back? Do you feel a responsibility? to kind of, you know, try to um, guide in another direction? Or do you kind of draw a line and let the artist be who the artist wants to be? Yes, I, I, I keep a neutral stance. Until I feel important enough to say something, then I will remain silent because it's bigger than me. This is generation. This is families. This is bloodshed, this is victims, this is survivors. They all come in my studio. They've all been there. They all, I, I, a few have not come back because of the violence. And then their families and their friends come in and make, you know, songs about the situation. So there's, it's like a domino effect. When does it stop? When does the last domino fall so we can pick the pieces back up again and set them straight back up? But I come from a violent city, you know. Detroit is is just as bad as Chicago, 
New Orleans. We used to be the murder capital. I feel like I am a part of these kids' lives, and I just want to see them do so much better and succeed. And if I had the direction that I'm giving them when I was young, I would have succeeded a long time ago. Maybe it's destiny, but again, I wish I had someone telling me this way, do it that way. When I hear Jay talk about music and the opportunities it's given him in life and hip-hop, the way that the genre and culture speaks and opposes the injustice of American society, it's as if he sees it all as a tool or an instrument to right the wrongs of his life, his past, and the wrongs and ills of others. Jay told me he wants to start a program called REAP, which stands for Recording, Engineering, Artistry, and Production. And yeah, reap, as in reap what you sow. He wants to give kids basic knowledge of music engineering, which could equip them for other jobs in television, radio, or in music. Jay feels that kids drop out of school because they don't have a reason to be there. He remembers what it feels like to sit in a classroom and not care, to get in trouble with friends around the neighborhood, to have his only passion be outside of the classroom. Reap, he hopes, will give kids a reason to stick around. Jay's girlfriend, Viola, who moved to Mexico, came back to San Diego. They're now engaged and they have two children of their own. The lease on Jay's studio in La Mesa is expiring soon and due to noise complaints from other tenants in the building, Jay has to relocate. He isn't worried, he said. He told me that Jay Watt is the product, not the recording studio. The studio isn't going to mix and push the buttons. You still have to have a human being in there that knows how to do all that. At Jay's studio, a plaque is nailed to one of the walls. It hangs just above the door that leads to the recording booth. It's small, so most artists probably miss it on their way in to record. The plaque reads, in thin black lettering, Innovation. The best way to predict the future is to create it. That sign was given to me by a great friend of mine. And um, I hold that, that quote to my heart because you have to predict your own future. And that is being innovative. And as I mentioned, I sell time and I can provide for my family and I can be happy at what I'm doing and go home with a smile. I'm exhausted, but a two, three hour nap and you wake up because you got a new client that contacted you the night before and said, I've been trying to get in, man. You're so hard to get in touch with. How do I just get one session with you? You know, and I wake up in the morning ready to go. San Diego, California, and I'm having some fun. 21 in Tijuana, blowing hundreds of ones. Never knew throughout my life that I would be number one. So I built the foundation all on my own. Despite the hardships in life, you gotta travel that road. Never give up till the life you have is gone. Never give up till the life you have is gone. This week's episode of I Made in San Diego was written by Jonah Valdez. I'm Kinsey Moreland, and I edited and produced it, and Adam Greenfield mixed and mastered it. If you like the show, please consider heading over to our website, voicesandiego.org, and hit the donate button. Every little contribution helps. And while you're on our website, click on podcasts and check out some of the other Voice of San Diego podcast network shows. Thanks for listening. Granny in the nursing home, so I made a sacrifice. Music on my family. This time I chose my family over industry. So I changed cities to Biloxi, Mississippi. No more popping bottles at clubs and getting tipsy. No more studio sessions and getting blizzy. But I got my little brothers and sisters, they all with me. My older brothers up in Detroit, they moving with me. Maybe dad get out in a year, God willingly. Uh. Gotta believe in something that they say Your life is worth more be patient when